This episode is not suitable for children and contains stories of domestic violence, which may be triggering to some. Today's guest had a complicated childhood, which saw him raising himself from the age of 14. After spending many years surfing couches, he found himself in a position needing to file for bankruptcy in his early 20s. He's an entrepreneur and an avid MMA fan, so he created the best MMA podcast in the northwest of America called Top Rated MMA, as well as another podcast, The Eric Allen Show, where he chats to entrepreneurs to learn their tips and secrets about being an entrepreneur. Episode 44, Eric Allen. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Right. Great. Good day. Sunshiny. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. You've got your own podcast, which is an MMA uh, podcast, but I actually wanted to have a chat to you about your life story. And I think it's interesting. I think it probably led you to probably to the world of MMA, if I'm sort of reading between the lines in terms of your childhood. Your bio says it was a complicated uh, childhood. Yeah. Explain complicated. It was complicated for sure. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> at first, but like, yeah. you know, like I said, I like, you know, grew up playing, uh, you know, little league baseball and going to Sunday school on, on Sundays with my, my family. And then Saturday mornings, my dad would take my best friend, Dave and I, and literally throw us in dumpsters behind big stores and say, go find treasure. Like that was just a typical Saturday morning. And then in dumpsters, in dumpster oh, yeah. diving? Oh, okay. oh, totally. Like, Hey man, what are you going to find in there? Like, is it, did someone throw away a chair or someone throw away, you know, something that was keepable, you know, like we were just dumpster diving as kids and yeah. it was like the funnest thing ever. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, but I think, you know, when my parents got divorced, they told me that when I was 11 years old, I never even heard the word before. And so it was yeah. real shocking to me. I didn't have any friends that had parents that were divorced. I kind of ate at me mentally. Like, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I the only kid that's experiencing this? Did you, um, did you see, that's interesting because when I was growing up, my parents aren't divorced and it was unusual that my, that my uh, parents were still together. Mm. Um, did you have any sense of in the home that they were unhappy? I saw my parents argue a couple times, but I, yeah. like my dad wasn't physically abusive or anything like that. Now he, he was an alcoholic at that time. Um, okay. it, but, and so I think, but I think what he became was real quiet and he would shut down. Um, so maybe that led to it. I don't know. I, and I still don't know the, the full details of why they got a divorce to this day, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be the only reason that I think maybe they met really early age, like they met in junior high school. So they were kind of together for a very long time. Yeah. And, uh, so I think that might've led to it. I'm not sure. Okay. So your parents get a divorce and you're 11. Yeah. How did you cope with that? Because that's a fairly traumatic event for a kid to go through. It was interesting. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. It was, you know, yeah. I, I was told that I had to stay with my mom per the courts till I was 13 years old. And so I didn't even know like really what that meant. I'd go see my dad on the weekends, my sister and I, who was four years younger than me. And so, you know, we'd go see my dad on the weekends at his house and things like that. And it was pretty normal, I guess. I mean, so to speak, I guess, going between the houses until my mom started dating this, this man that was also an alcoholic. Uh, but he was very physically abusive. And so, I, I mean, I remember like probably the first or second time he was over at our house, he was beating her up. 
That early on in their relationship, he was being physically abusive. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's sad. So you were witnessing this yourself? Oh, yeah, for sure. I remember there was times where they would be arguing the first couple of times that, you know, it would get really loud and crazy. And I would call the police and I would go outside and look through their bedroom window to see what's going on. And I would see him like hit her with a cordless phone when those were still around, you know, like he'd be hitting her in the head and all craziness. And, you know, at that time being just 11 and 12 years old, yeah. my only action or my reaction was to call the police, call the police. Yeah, exactly. And, right. And then they would show up and my mom would never press charges. I will. I hear that that's very common. I yeah. don't have any. Um, I don't have any uh, experience in uh, that, thankfully. But yeah, um, yeah I, I you hear that story quite a lot. That it's very it's very common. Um, so it's your younger sister and yourself mm-hmm. in the home. Where are you? Where are you living? Are you still in contact with your dad? Are you like? What's the dynamic there? Yeah, I still was in contact with my dad. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't have cell phones at the time, right? I'm 41 years old, so it yeah. wasn't like I could pull up a cell phone. But yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we were still seeing my dad on the weekends. And, you know, I loved being over over my dad's, you know, and, and I think, you know, it was like he had this little tiny apartment, me and my sister would go hang out and sleep on the floor in his apartment. And, you know, it was just this fun weekend. It was an escape to get away from the craziness that was yeah. happening at my mom's house, you know, were you telling him what was going on at your mom's place? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, it was, um, you, you know, just tell him like, hey, you know, he's beating up mom. And at that point, I, I, I mean, I don't remember if he ever tried to do anything. I know that he was just trying to get us out as, you know, as yeah. much as and often as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was never physically abused, nor was my sister that I know of. It was just my mom. So it wasn't like it, it could have been a dangerous situation for us as kids, but it, it wasn't like he was coming after us. It was more after my mom, it seemed. So you're how old at this stage? When you're calling the police, eleven years old. Okay. Yeah, which is crazy because my daughter's eleven right now, which is just nutty to think about. <laughs> so you're in what state at the at that time? Um, I lived in Washington State, so I lived in a town called Kenwick, Washington. So do they have when the police turn up? Do they have a mandatory requirement to remove that person from the home for a set amount of time? No. Nope. Uh, they would maybe take them to jail for the night. My mom yeah. would go bail them out or yeah. um, it depends on like how bad the situation was. Uh, but, you know, we moved to Montana about a year and a half after he was involved uh, or maybe a year in. in so uh, after he was in, involved with my mom yeah. and same sort of thing, they probably came to the house probably four or five times before we moved to Montana. And, you know, my mom never pressed charges. And then we get up there and it just the abuse just continued. Why do you think that it did it escalate when you moved? It did. Yeah. And it, it was one because we were really remote. I mean, we were in a beautiful part of Montana. We were up by the Bitterroot River. You know, they had five acres they had rented this house on. But the police station was a good 30, 40 minutes away. It wasn't right. close to our house. And so, yeah, it did pick up the pace. And, you know, uh, this house that we rented, it was three bedrooms. It was one for them, one for my little brother, and one for my, or one for my sister. And they literally said, Eric, you get to go live in the garage. And my half of the garage, which I had like a tarp at the end of my bed that separated me from the truck, I had a fireplace on it. So it'd keep me semi-warm in the negative degrees of the winters of Montana. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting. That's for sure. You know, that, I, that that's where they would decide to put me. And, you Hang know, on a minute. Was, you mentioned another sibling up yeah. until now. We've only mentioned a sister that was four years younger than you. So did your mother and this gentleman 
I use the word gentleman loosely. Yeah. Um, uh, have another have a child. Yes, and sorry, I, I right. totally we just went right over that. Yeah, so they yeah they you ended, did, Eric. Come on I, now. I so apologize. Yeah, <laughs> my my mom ended up getting pregnant, and and right. so they they moved to Montana. And my brother at that time was just a few months old. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you got the garage. Yep, I got the garage. Yeah. Okay. So, how did they broach that with you? We're moving to this house. Like you're rocking up with your suitcase, and then suddenly you're like you're in you're not in the house. You're in the garage. I, there was parts of it where it was kind of fun. Uh, yeah. But it, it definitely felt like abandonment and rejection and things like that. I spent a lot of time out in my room. I had a TV and, you know, so I play a lot of like Super Nintendo back in the day when it was there, right? Uh, but it was still kind of odd that it was like, you know, you get to go live in the garage. And, and at the same time, I didn't really want to be inside because of the craziness that happened. So it was kind of an escape room for me almost. Yeah, but I think that's very, very... Um... I don't want to say damaging. It probably is damaging, but I think it's very hurtful as a kid to be like, you're not part of the family in the home. Totally. You get to, you know, live out with the car and the or ve- vehicle or whatever you guys, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah. say it, um, out in the garage. So, yeah, yeah crazy. Oh, that's you awful. know. I think myself, my sister, and my brother, we all had very different childhoods because, yeah, you know, I was I was 11 when he came into the picture. My sister's four years younger than me, and then my little brother, who's 13 years younger than me, uh, or just about 13 years younger. I think he's maybe 12 or uh, uh-huh. 12 and a half. But uh, so, yeah, we all had very different childhoods. How was your mom working at all at this stage? Uh, no, nope, she was not. She so was she didn't home. have any. So she really didn't have any financial means to get out either. No. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I think that's an important um, point to make. Yeah. How was your sister dealing with it at this stage? I, I think that she was okay with it. I mean, I, I don't think she was okay with the abuse, but it didn't affect her as much. I think she was younger. She spent a lot of times at a lot of time at friends' houses and things like that, where I was home a lot, uh, just trying to get through, you know, homework and make sure that I was taking care of that and my schoolwork and getting all that done. And I had a lot more chores around the house. He had six horses, so it was my job to go out and pick up the horse poop and all that you know, fun stuff, but, you know, feed the horses and things. But, you know, I, I don't think it affected her quite as much. I got uh, the the brunt of it for sure. I got, a, you know, I would say verbal abuse from him, mm. uh, never physically abuse. Why do you think you caught the brunt of it? Do you think it was because you were the other older male in the home? Or do you think that it was just because he was just lashing out at everybody? Like if you're saying that your sister didn't cop the verbal abuse, but you did. Yeah. that's That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was one because I was the male, uh, but mm. also because I didn't really put up with this stuff. So if he'd say something rude, I'd say something back, and, right. you know, and like if he did something that I, you know, was trying to be mean to my mom or something, I would, I would speak up. And I remember there'd be times where we'd be eating dinner and I would speak up and my mom would like kick my leg underneath the table or pinch my leg underneath the table and be like, shut up, shut up. You know? Probably terrified. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get? How did you get out of that situation? Hmm. Yeah, it was it was an interesting situation for sure. You know, brushed yeah. my teeth one night. I was thirteen years old. They came home arguing. It wasn't anything different than any other night. You know, but I brushed my teeth, and I felt in that moment for me personally that God was telling me, "Look, dude, you got to turn around and, and check out what's going on." And so the way the house was set up was behind me was the kitchen to the pantry to the garage that I stayed at. And as I turned around the corner, I saw him on top of my mom in the pantry, just boom. Boom, boom, one shot after the other, straight to her face. And I'm like, man, I got to get this guy off. And so I walked up behind him and I grabbed a cast iron pan out of the cupboard and I swung as hard as I could and I split the back of his head open. 
Yeah, that'd that'd and, that'd do it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> oh, it, it, it it did knock him out. He turned around. He's like, "What?" Then, wow. as he said that, I split his forehead open again with another swing. Oh my goodness! And he was so drunk that I remember at that point I swung so hard I fell over, and he was standing up over me. He's bleeding from his face. He starts to yell. My mom jumps up, lands like six punches in a row to the face, blood splatting on the wall. Cops finally show up. Well, she she punched him. Yeah, oh yeah, she jumped up and landed like six punches because he was yelling at me, and I think she was like going into mama bear mode, and you know yeah. jumped and you know jumped in there to try to stop him from physically hurting me. Yeah. And cops showed up, took him to jail. My mom never pressed charges. Went and got him the next morning. And at that point, I was kicked out. I had three months left to my freshman year of high school, so I just bounced around from friends' houses for the next three months. And what's you know, like, is, what's freshman year? Is that your last year? Uh, first year of high school. So, so that would be year grade seven nine. in Australia. Oh, okay. It's different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are different. So you're probably, you're nine. So you're probably 14, 15 at this stage. Uh, I was 13. 13. Okay. Yep. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So 13 at that point and, uh, just bounced around from houses and that led me down this path of destruction for the next 10 years after my freshman year, went back to live with my dad in Washington and uh, let my mom and, and sister and brother kind of do their thing. How was it leaving <clears throat> your mom and your siblings in that environment? I wasn't bothered by it. And really? I know that's a weird response, but I, yeah. I really wasn't. And the reason why is at that point, I had seen my mom go through so much stuff and she had so many opportunities to leave him. Yeah. Even after the first time that yeah. he came over and was physically abusive, that she was kind of on her own at that point. You know, like, yeah, I don't, I didn't want her to get hurt, but she also had plenty of opportunity to leave him and, and could have enough. done it many times. Right. Um, and she chose not to. So she put herself in that situation. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I think that it's hard to judge somebody if you've never been in that situation, particularly if she doesn't have any financial means, she's probably sure. thinking that she's got kids to support. Yeah. It's probably a lot of emotional abuse as well happening. Yep. Um, just an awful situation to, to be in. Yeah. Yeah. What was your dad saying? Obviously you related this story to the fact that you'd hit this uh, individual over the head with a cast iron pan. Good shot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it was an interesting dynamic because my dad was renting a house or he rented a house for him and I to live in that was close to the high school that I would go to when I, when I moved back to Washington yeah. uh, for my last three years of school. And so I got there and he would fill the freezer up with hunger man meals and he'd put cereal milk in the house and he put $20 in the cup for me to buy my lunch money for the week. And then he'd go stay with his girlfriend. So I'd see my dad maybe two or three times a month, uh, just in passing. So wow. I had no adult supervision, no accountability. He bought me a bus pass so I could take the public transportation to get to school. Uh, but I, I got into drugs pretty early, you know, so I was smoking yeah. pot before school. I was smoking pot at lunch. I was smoking pot after school and I was taking acid and mushrooms and, you know, whatever I could get my hands on and barely graduate high school, you know, and the, my senior year, it finally caught up to me. My last year of school, um, I got caught with drug paraphernalia. I had a bong on me, which was, it's legal now in the state of Washington, but it wasn't in 1998. And so I had to go to jail. I had a black and white chain gang outfit on bright orange slippers and had to go stay the night in jail. And it was pretty scary. And I was on a year probation, so I couldn't smoke any pot or do drugs for a year. But what that did was enhance my drinking. So I started drinking pretty heavily. And two weeks after I graduated high school, I woke up to a note on my bathroom mirror that said, you can't comply with house rules. You have 48 hours to get out. 
And wow, so you were kicked out again. Kicked out again, yeah. So but your I, dad wasn't even your dad wasn't living with like you weren't living with your dad really at that stage. Uh, so my the last four months of my senior year, him and his girlfriend bought a house together, and I moved into that house with them together. And so I had my room downstairs, and yeah, I woke up to a note uh, two weeks after I graduated that said that. That's pretty tough, though, considering you've been on your own for so long, and now it's you're you're in with two adults and expected to live by house rules, and you've been for how many years just doing your own thing? Yeah, the house rules that I broke was not doing the dishes. <laughs> I, I know that sounds funny, but it's, I have this thing about wet food on plates. It just grosses me out. And so I, I didn't mind doing the dishes, but what I said was, Hey, if you have food left over on the plate, don't put it in the sink. Just, you know, scrape the food off in the, the garbage and I'll wipe yeah. them off and put them in the dishwasher. But they kept doing it. So what I did was I took the plates that had the food and I set it at the side and I washed the other ones. I take the ones that had the food and put them back in the sink for the next day. A couple Very of days passive later. aggressive of you, Eric. Don't. <laughs> So that was the rule that I broke that got me kicked out of the house. <laughs> you mentioned that you've got an eleven-year-old daughter. I don't know if you've got any other kids, but how do you go with wet food on plates now? I mean, she was obviously a little kid at some stage. Yeah, I, I think I've grown up a little bit, but it still grosses me out quite a bit. <laughs> Are you one of these people that that won't let the food touch other foods on the plate when you eat? Totally was as a kid. <laughs> totally not now was. though. Uh, not as much. My daughter. Same exact way. <laughs> Get out. So peas and carrots can't totally. mix. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Are you textural as well with what you eat? Like you can't eat certain textures of foods? I, I So my wife, she'll eat pretty much all the uh, like food, but it's really hard to cook for me because I don't eat onions and I don't right. eat tomatoes. Right. And Is that because so, you're fruct- fructose? Uh, no, it's just like, I, it is like you said, a, maybe a texture thing for onions, but ever since I was a kid, yeah. I've never liked onions. I had a, uh, one time I thought like uh, green strip or green onions yeah. as a young kid. One time I picked them up thinking they were celery and I took a big bite at them and never went back. <laughs> when I was when I was younger, my dad used to have this thing when we were growing up of he loves lamb's fry. So lamb's fry, I don't know what you call it over in the States, but it's um, lamb's kidneys basically. Okay. And he used to cook it up and we used to hate it as kids, like hate it. And he used to insist on us eating it. And I can't, like, it's just the most awful thing. And my husband had the same thing with eggs. Like he used to get fed eggs a lot and now he can't eat eggs. And no one in their right mind would ever eat lamb's kidney anyway. So apparently it was good for you. But, yeah, those are the things that you remember as a childhood that you can't touch as an adult. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I still don't eat onions to this day. My wife, she'll eat onions, you know, and my son who's eight, uh, he's like my wife, he'll eat onions and tomatoes and all that stuff. So it's, it's funny that they took after us. (laughs) Tell me, um, when you were kicked out, what is, what happened then? So you have this note, you've got, what was it? 48 hours to get out. Yeah. That's a huge amount of notice. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I immediately called. I, I was close. I'm very close with uh, my dad's sister. And so mm-hmm. I went and moved in with them for about a year. And um, actually, it was probably close for about seven months or so. Uh, but I was, you know, went and lived with them. I was working. I, I got a full time job and I was, you know, working at a hotel. And so I wasn't, I was just in and out. And then basically I ended up like they were moving. And so I had to get out. So I, between ages of 18 and 21, I moved 21 different times. So I lived on couches of floors of second cousins for a week here, two weeks there, four days there, you know, just bouncing around. I had a hundred dollars in my pocket when I was uh, 20 years old and I moved to Seattle. So it was about a four hour drive from where I lived uh, there in Washington state. 
And so I went up there and again, sleeping on floors, bounced around a bit, finally got myself put into an apartment where, you know, I was, uh, I found a guy that I'd gotten a job with and he needed a place to live. So we kind of just roomed up. And, and so it was kind of an interesting transition, but, uh, I always wanted to move to Seattle. And so you know, I think that was just part of my journey, but living that, you know, bouncing around from houses and houses, I was living off credit cards. So by the time I'm 21, I was $28,000 in debt and had to file oh bankruptcy. Goodness. Um, uh, why Seattle? Doesn't it uh, rain there a lot? It does. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's about my extent of yeah. Seattle, and that's probably from sleepless in Seattle. I'm not really up with it. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. The reason I moved, I wanted to move there was I, I don't know how to play anything, but I love music. I love live yeah. music. I love the music industry. And so I had some friends that played in some bands in high school. And so I was like, hey, you know what? There's no better place to get into the music business if I can get up to Seattle. So I got up there, and it was still this goal of mine to get into the music business. And I was working at the CD store when they were around called FYE. And, uh, you know, this guy walked in, he worked for Universal Records. And I jokingly said, hey, man, how do I get your job? And he goes, oh, you got to be an intern. You got to go to the community college and, you know, take this course. And then you can, once you take it, then you can go here and email this person. So I was like, all right. So I go to the community college, talk to him about this internship class. And I paid 350 bucks to register for it. Got the teacher to sign off that I was a student never went to a class, took that receipt to Universal Records, said, look, I'm in the community college. I want to be an intern. They said, all right, you're in. <laughs> so I got in at Universal Records and I just showed up every day for six months, just stuffing posters and, um, you know, tracking sales. And then during that time, though, I was able to go to free concerts, two to three concerts a week, and I had open tabs. So I was living the rock star lifestyle without being an actual rock star. Yeah. And uh, finally, they, they started started to start paying me. After six months, I got paid uh, to be their mailroom coordinator. So I was tracking sales. I was setting up meet and greets with rock stars, and it was really fun. And then I got laid off my one-year anniversary. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> this is during the, the Napster days, if people remember the Napster days, and it totally killed the music industry. And I was one of the, you know, the guy at the bottom of the totem pole. So I got yeah. let go, and that kind of set me into a, a depression for the next year or so. How did that depression manifest? Because are you still drinking and doing the drugs fairly heavily? Totally. Yeah. Not as much on the drug side, more on the drinking side. Yeah. And then occasionally I know I'll be backstage and someone might say, hey, I, you know, hey, want to do some drugs? Yeah, sure. I'll smoke some pot. No, no, no. I'm talking about cocaine. Oh, I've never done that. Okay, sure. You're right. So like it was just accessible. And uh, so, um, yeah, still doing drugs and, and still drinking, but mostly on the drinking side at that point. And uh, I was working at Starbucks one night. Uh, I was a night manager for Starbucks in between the the rock concerts I was going to. And I was really depressed. I'd get off work. I'd go to my grocery store and grab a six pack of beer and go rent a video from the, you know, the, the rental store. And then go to my ghetto apartment, which is across the street from where Jimi Hendrix is buried there in Renton, Washington. And I would drink myself to sleep every night. And this girl walked into Starbucks one eight and she said, and she doesn't drink coffee. And she said, Hey, we've got this cool college age event down at our church. Would you be interested in going? And I was depressed and I was alone and had no friends. And she was very good looking. Absolutely. Hey, I wasn't going to ask you. She was hot. What time, do, what time does it start? I'll be there. Right. You know, like I was ready to go. And uh, so I got down there and it was like, I knew all these guys from the other side of the state that I like went to high school. With. Dude, I haven't seen you in five years. I haven't seen you in seven years. Just this weird, like almost God was planting a seed in that moment. And I was there just to help like tear down and, and set up this youth event they were doing. And, uh, so it was about a month later is Easter 2004. I was managing a band. We went out and played a concert 
and woke up on Easter morning surrounded by probably 15 guys in my buddy's basement uh, at his house there. And I woke up early about five o'clock in the morning. And I felt in that moment for God, he was telling me like, dude, you're going down this path. Your life's going to end real quick if you don't start making some changes. And so I decided in that moment to give my life to Christ right there in my buddy's basement. I quit cold turkey, drugs, drinking cigarettes, everything from that moment on. And why, I do, you, why do you oh, think, why do you think, um, and I'm asking this as uh, not to uh, devalue your religion at, yeah, at all. Totally. Why do you think that that was Christ talking to you and not just your inner self, that inner monologue? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think where it comes from is I, you know, growing up in the church, also in right out of high school, I was dating a girl uh, that was a Christian. And so I was going to church with her. So I, I believe that I've always had this relationship with Christ, but it was kind okay. of for other people. Yeah. You know, I, I'd never had done it for myself. And uh, yeah, I mean, inner monologue, Christ, you know, it, you know, but I felt in that moment that personally, I felt like it was God going, dude, you, you're going to, your life's going to end if you don't Tapping start making some serious changes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so that's, that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, right. uh, but yeah, I, I called that girl up and I got her voicemail that invited me to that church event. I said, Hey, happy Easter. Maybe I'll see you at the Starbucks sometime. And a month later we we're dating and now we've been married for almost 17 years. Um, I love that story. Um, <laughs> we were both born at exactly 1.41 PM documented on our birth certificates. Yeah. Say different days, different years, but the exact same minute on our birth certificate. Apparently it's not a world record that you're born at the same time and you would get married. I tried. I reached out to Guinness World Records. Did you really? I did. I was like, dude, is this a world record? Like, you know, we we got married. We're born at the same time. Um, It cost five bucks to submit a record, you know, to see if if you're a record. Uh, And it took them like six months to get back. They sent me this letter in the mail saying, nope, it's not a world record. (laughs) Wow. I wonder what would be the world record for that, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I didn't even know if it was like a world record, but I thought, hey, that's kind of cool. Maybe we'll see if we can get in the Guinness World Record. Yeah, they should have bloody started one. (laughs) Jeez Louise. Okay. So you're married at this stage. How did you get into the whole MMA thing? Because I'm I'm assuming that you also are in the sport as well as not just having a podcast. So never have fought. I trained okay. a little bit of boxing when I was in high school. Did yeah. a little bit of karate when I was a kid. The cool thing, the really cool memories that I have of my dad was as a kid, he would get Mike Tyson and boxing pay- pay-per-view. So I was yeah. always watching that. And he would take us to, or take me uh, to WWF events like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior and, and you know, like Macho Man Randy Savage. Is that before way back. you found out it was fake? Right. Yes, totally. I was the guy who was like, this is not fake. You know, like that was right. Uh, but uh, yeah. So I like, love that they own that now though. They own that. It's totally. fake. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, so he would always take me to that. My dad would actually rent movies when I was a kid that had no English. It was just ninja movies. Mm. And so we would just watch ninja. So I think I was always infatuated with like combat sports and ninjas. I think I was a ninja for Halloween for like 15 years straight, you know, like just always wanted Stays to be involved. Costume. Yeah, totally. <laughs> still do. Yeah, still do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I come, you know, around 2012, I'm sitting around the house and talking to my wife. I'm like, hey, I really want to get involved in MMA, but I don't obviously don't want to fight, but I want to start this maybe apparel company and see if we can make something of it. And so we borrowed a little bit of money and we had no idea what we were doing. We bought a bunch of stuff that didn't sell. Um, at first it did, but then it kind of blew away real quick. And so in 2015, I actually got bored with it. And uh, my wife came up with a name called Top Rated MMA, which is still the name of the podcast today. But uh, 
in 2015, I put an ad in Craigslist. And I said, who wants to buy this company? I don't, I'm not interested in it. I want to sell it. One guy called me up and he offered me a few grand for the name and the branding and all that. And in that call, I decided not to sell. And I took the next year to kind of just ho-hum through the business, like barely really do anything with it. And then in 2017, I started the Top Rated MMA podcast. And really the, the goal was to talk with MMA fighters and ask them, why do you want to get in a cage and get punched in the face? Yeah. Right. And so now we are episode 238, I think drops this weekend. Yeah. And what's the common theme? It's interesting. So a lot of guys will say, hey, I, I grew up wrestling or I grew up doing karate and it just transitioned to MMA. But right. then I've had those guests on. They're like, man, I have a federal offense and I can't get a real job, but I can go fight somebody, put food on my table. So yeah. I'm going to do that. And so it's really cool to, to hear their stories. You know, the, the one question that I ask on both my podcasts that I have is the first question is tell me about where you grew up and what was childhood like for you? Because yeah. I want my listeners to understand that they're just real people that are on my show that, you know, maybe they went through some crap. Maybe they went through, had a great life, but they wanted to do something and then they took action to make it happen. So you can do MMA as a sport though and not actually hop in the ring and get punched in the face, can't you? Uh, you can do MMA as a amateur or a pro, but you still have to get in a cage or a ring and fight. Yeah. But, but you, you can't, do- you can't just work out and do it as like oh, a, yeah, yeah. Fit. I'm sorry. Yeah. Misunderstood. Yeah. Yep. You can totally just train in it. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you, but you don't do that. Nope. I don't do that. I'm Pure too busy. armchair expert. <laughs> totally I love armchair. it. Um, yeah. I just watched the CrossFit games. I'm an armchair <laughs> expert in that as well. Like. Yeah. Yeah, huge fan. I uh, have a lot of friends that are that are professional fighters. My kids are in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and they yeah. they do MMA. Yeah. Uh, but I I am not they my kids motivate me. I'm like, dude, maybe I want to I'm 41. I'm going to make a comeback, you know, like you know, trying to yeah. do that, but we'll see. What's the difference between MMA and UFC? So just UFC is the promotion right. uh, where MMA is mixed martial arts. So UFC is just like the major league baseball of fighting. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you're that's saying the big this show. to someone that comes from a country where baseball's not very big. So oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, why you got that poor, the pause on the. <laughs> that's awesome. No, it's Pensive like, look. I was trying to like, okay, uh, I'm just gonna uh, let that one go through to the keeper. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, that's like a professional level sport. Whatever, like on your guy, uh, probably I don't know football, rugby on your end, like professional rugby teams, yeah. probably right. Yeah. So um, that's like the elite of the elite of fighters that get to make it to that level. Okay. Yeah. All right. How um, are you still close with your mum? Like what happened with your mum and your siblings in that environment? Yeah, great question. So my brother is 26 or seven now. He lives out in the Seattle area. Uh, I don't have, I'm not close with any of my siblings. You know, I talk to my sister on birthdays and holidays because she's got mm. three awesome kids. And, but in regards to like, we're just not close. She lives in Texas. My mom lives in Texas. I'm not close with my mom. Um, I, maybe text my dad once a month and that that's about it. But I moved to Idaho. My wife and I moved to Idaho in 2014, really just so we could be on our own. We didn't want to to have those family members that could just pop in and knock on the door and say, hey, what's going on? Like we came out to a state specifically not knowing anybody. We wanted this adventure of just us to really change the legacy that we're leaving with our kids. My wife came from the crazy household too, you know, so us, we wanted to just change things for our kids where our kids would not have to experience the the yuck that we did as kids. How has witnessing that environment and that abuse as a child Mm -hmm. affected your 
romantic relationships when you were I'm because you were probably dated before you met your wonderful yeah. wife when she walked into Starbucks and you thought she was hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I never really committed to anything. I I, yeah. I think I did struggle for a long time, yeah. you know, having girlfriends and things like that. One girl I dated for like two years um, and that was about it. But everything else was, was just like short term, you know, things. And it just, I couldn't settle. Uh, and I never felt like I could or never, never really felt like I wanted to even at that point. Um, and so, I mean, to, to, for the first five years of our marriage, my wife and I just kind of figured out how to do this thing on our own, like how to, cause she brought in junk. I brought in junk and you know, we knew exactly what we didn't want in marriage. So we had to work that stuff out. And I ended up going through counseling in our early marriage because I wanted mm -hmm. to figure out what the heck happened. Like, why am I still kind of like bothered by this stuff that happened as a kid? I had a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment of not only that, but like, you know, the party scene and the dating scene that I had to deal with before I got to my wife, I, I was really ashamed of it. And so uh, that's just, I went through counseling, it totally helped. And I would definitely recommend that to anybody out there who's just kind of like going, oh, what do I do? Who do I talk to? You know, it, it, and at first, I was really nervous, but it really did help a lot. It's interesting that you saying that you felt ashamed, like the emotion was a shame, mm. that you were ashamed of that. Yeah. I was I, embarrassed uh, and ashamed that I came from that. Like, you know, yeah. my friends, you know, my, my, my buddy, Dave, still my best friend today. We met in yeah. first grade and like his family, amazing family. I love them so much. And his family was like the perfect family to me. Like he's got four or three sisters and his parents are still married today, almost 60 years, you know? And so like I was, I had shame because I saw them and I saw their wonderful like life and their wonderful marriage. And then I would look at mine and go, man, that's embarrassing. I don't, I, I'm shameful. I don't want to tell people that I came from this crazy childhood. Yeah. yeah that's an, it's an interesting, um, I can understand where you got like where that, that emotion came from, but yeah. it's from a human level. I think it's sad that that was what was that. That's what, you know, I suppose that's childhood trauma, isn't it? That it yeah, attaches different so. emotions and stuff. Yeah. Yep. Did you ever go, I don't know what you did before the podcast took off and stuff, but what did you, did you ever go into um, any form of, and I'm saying this because I think a lot of people that have had either childhood trauma or uh, bullied or whatever can potentially go into roles where they sort of end up standing up for that, for the defenseless. So police force or um, army and stuff like that. Have you, did you ever go into any of those sort of careers? I wish that I would have. I got yeah. one recruiting call when I was 18 years old from a guy who I, I think he was asking me to get into the army. And my dad probably set him up to call me <laughs> if, we're, if, we're, if I'm thinking back, right? You know, but Was it before I, the 48 hours? Was it before that deadline? It was. Yeah, it was uh. before the 48 hour kick out. Um, but he called me. And at that time in my life, I was not very into military service. I was, uh, you know, not that I, I just never thought about it, but I also like had this weird conspiracy theory. Well, you guys lie about everything and there's UFOs and, you know, like just weird stuff. You well, know, there like, are so, UFOs. Totally. I agree. But <laughs> They're totally like, coming out about that now. <laughs> right. But at the time, like me being probably high as a kite when he called me, I yep. didn't say some nice things to him and I never got a, a call back again from yeah. a recruiting officer. But to this day, my wife and I and our kids, if we're out in town, we see someone in military service or in a police officer or an EMT or firefighter, like we just so appreciate them and what they do and they put online for us. 
every time we're like, hey, look, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you do. And my kids now, even 11, 8, where they might spot somebody before we do, they go, dad, let's go tell that guy, thank you for, you know, being an awesome military guy, you know? And so they, we just really just like to show our kids like, hey, man, we appreciate these guys that are out there doing, they're literally putting their lives on the line for us. So I never did, but I have so much appreciation for them now. How are the police officers when you were, com- they were coming out, you're the one that's dialing 911 they're coming out to your home they're witnessing the abuse they're probably seeing the the bruises on your mum um how are they interacting with you and are they able to offer any support i know this was a while ago no no it's i think it's so they would come over and they would talk to me asking about what i saw what i you know what i was feeling and and at the time yeah i was i was definitely upset uh you know but they never offered Hey, do you want to go somewhere? Or hey, do you want us to take you away from this house or anything like that? And I, and if they had asked me that, I probably wouldn't have anyways. Yeah, uh, just because it's your mom, it's your family. It's my mom, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, so they, I remember like they were nice and everything like that, but they never offered like, hey, do you want to go somewhere else or anything like that. Yeah, I I wonder from a police officer point of view how, um going to the same residence over and over again, you know, that same pattern. Sure. I interviewed a um a police officer that was actually in a very toxic relationship and started to to border on abuse the other day. Mm. And she was saying how slowly it crept up and she didn't even realise it. And she was trained in how to spot it in her profession. Yeah. But she couldn't recognise it in her own life. And it wasn't until she went for one particular case that she was like, I could have just inserted my name into the situation. And yeah, fascinating though, isn't it? How when you're in it, it can be so, so toxic. Mm -hmm. Now with your daughter and everything, she's 11. So she's probably not dating yet. No, I have a six foot deep hole in the backyard when that happens. <laughs> for the guy or for yourself? <laughs> oh, for the guy. Yeah, I, I'm a man, like it, I live in Idaho, where it's very much about like, hey, we're we're patriotic. We have guns. We don't care about COVID. Like out here, we're the whole time we've been kind of like, what's COVID? You know, like people are rushing out here because the the government out here is like, hey, you know what? The cases are low. Keep doing your thing. No one needs to wear masks. Like, it's very free out here. And uh, so, yeah, I mean. Look, when my daughter starts dating, I'm going to definitely be the opposite of the guy that I was. I was, you know, so I, I plan on being that much harsher guy that's like, hey, I'm going to scare the crap out of this guy. And he better impress me very much before he even thinks about dating my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, what have you got going on now? You've got the, do you still have the apparel business? So I still do just one-off prints. I have my own heat press now and I bought a hat press. And so I do just one-off every once in a while. What I have going on right now is I have the two shows. So I have the top rated MMA show drops every Saturday. And then the Eric Allen show drops every Friday. And that's really more focused on entrepreneurs and world changers and success-minded people. And I've been blessed to speak with some of those high-end entrepreneurs out there. But uh, so I do both of those. I do voiceover work. So, you know, people will pay me to do- No, you've got a good radio voice, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I started doing that this year and just- kind of offer my services to like read audiobooks. I just completed a, uh, some lady had paid me for her brother couldn't read. So she, but he's really into cactus. So she sent me all this books on cactus and said, can you convert this to audio? So I just did that. And um, so, yeah, I love doing that. I do brand and product videos. So brands, mostly beard companies uh, will send me their product and say, Hey, you're sporting an awesome beard at the moment. (laughs) 
this you. is this isn't recorded for video. This is just audio. So those that can't yeah. see Eric, he's sporting a very luscious full beard, which is mid chest height. I would probably say in yeah, terms yeah. of that, very metrosexual of you. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> very so, hipster. Love uh, it. Uh, yeah, it's so it it pays the bills. Uh, beard, I'm a technically quote unquote a beard model. My wife's Are friends. You? Are, it looks yes. very conditioned and uh, and shaped. Yeah, I I definitely tried it to make sure it looks nice and not homeless, you know. And <laughs> it's funny because I I'll, brands will like they'll have me do videos or do photos, right? And then yeah. they'll go sell their product on Amazon. So my wife's friends will say, "Hey, look, I found your husband on Amazon again," and like screenshot this <laughs> ad that I'm in. And so I'm like, quote unquote, Amazon famous, you know. <laughs> with your with the entrepreneurs that you've spoken to, what's the most common theme that you find when you speak to them? Uh, one, they have a really good morning routine. Yeah. And for me, I'm big on morning routines. I wake up at 4 a.m. six days a week. And Get so out. That every, yeah, six days a week, I wake up at 4 a.m. And, and for me, if I open my eyes, there's win number one. I jump out of bed, I make my bed. There's two wins in 15 seconds. It's going to be an amazing day. Okay. And so that's a big, big thing that I see common theme with, with entrepreneurs that I have on my show. Big on morning routine, big on being consistent and big on being sur uh, surrounding yourself with people that are living the life that you want. So, you know, for me, I want to be a successful entrepreneur. I want to be successful in my marriage. So I want to hang around guys that are, you know, being successful in their marriage and guys that are being successful in their business and great dads. And so I try to surround myself with those people and just being in their presence. I'm going to learn so much and it's going to lift mm. me up. Why 4am? <clears throat> what time do you go to sleep? Uh, I'm not a party animal like I used to be, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a real exciting guy at 9.30 at night. I'm usually asleep snoring, yeah. um, but uh, I, I try to make it to 9.30. I told my wife, hey, Saturday nights, that's our night. You want to hang out? I'll try to make it to like 10.30, 11-ish if I can, because um, I don't set an alarm on Sunday mornings, though I usually wake up by about 5.30. But I set that alarm clock before him because that allows me to get up and have some quiet time to myself while my kids and my wife are still sleeping and grow in personal development. So, you know, I get up to my office, I created a vision wall. My, my vision is too big for a vision board. So I took an entire wall of my office Love and it. created this vision wall Love and it. it's got quotes and photos. And, um, you know, this funny thing that I have on there that everybody laughs at is, you know, I have this cartoon and it says, if you can't pee off your front porch, your neighbors are too close. Like yeah. that's my goal. I want that property. And so I look at that and I go, Oh man, I can't wait. So I do that. And then I, you know, spend time in prayer and, and worship. And then, um, I start, podcasting, I start editing, I start grabbing that, reaching out to guests and responding to emails. And so for me, it's that time to really grow in my personal development before they wake up. And then I still work on nine to five. So at eight o'clock in the morning, I flip over to my work computer and I start doing that. And then at five o'clock, I usually call it a day. That's a full day, man. I don't know if it I is. could do the 4am wake up. So that's kind of close to when I'm going to bed. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> it used to be that way. <laughs> I don't have kids, so it's a little bit different. I'm not yeah. not having to deal with them when they wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and having a chat. And please, if you're interested in MMA, jump onto the MMA uh, podcast, Top Rated MMA, and also the Eric Allen Show for the entrepreneur stuff. Oh, man. Fiona, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is truly an honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Cheers, Eric. 
Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 